0: We turn to the Gospel of John and, and chapter 20. And as you're turning, I, I was going to actually bring a prop this morning. I was going to bring one of my, my crosses. You know, I mean last year if I told you I have, a, I have a collection of crosses. And this year, I actually um, I treated myself to a new a new cross um, a, 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 you know, from South Cathedral. It was a it's it's a bit like this one behind me, except it's um, a lot smaller and it's not made of wood, it's made of marble. In fact, it looks nothing like this. But there's one, there one similarity, um, One similarity, which is this cross, like my other cross, and like all my crosses, are what I call Jesus-free crosses. And I call them Jesus-free crosses because, well, Jesus is not on them. Um, and, you know, they're basically bare crosses. And I have them because I like to remember that, yes, Jesus died for me on the cross. But I also remember Jesus is not dead. He is alive and he's resurrected. Can I get an Amen. So the resurrection is so important to us as believers. And, uh, and so this morning, it's a real privilege for me to, to be able to talk a little bit about the, the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. So I'm going to read the chapter of 20. Um, it's a bit of a long chapter, but I want you to stick with me. Because for me, the, at first I was trying to find like a small snippet, but I thought, no, what, the whole chapter is good. So I'm going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to read from the um, NRSV. Which is slightly different than it in IV, but it's not that different, so um, you should be able to follow along. Okay. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and and saw, saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to summon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do, and we do not know where, where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went towards the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down and looked in and saw the linen wrappings laying there, but he did not go in. Then some of Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting at where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you crying? She said to them, They have taken away the Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and, sh- and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, that I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Madeline went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he has said these things to her. When it was evening on, on, the, on that day, the first day of the week, the doors of the house where the disciples were, were, had met were locked for the fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of many of any, they are forgiven them. If we retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when the Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the marks of the nails and my hands in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas went with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, "Peace be with you." Then he said to Thomas, "Put your finger here, and see my hands. Reach out, reach out, reach out your hand, and put it inside my side. Do not doubt, but believe." Thomas answered him, "My Lord and my God." Jesus said to him, "Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe." Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in his book. But these are written so that you come to believe that Jesus yes. is the Messiah, yeah. the Son of God, and through believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Wow. wow. Amazing chapter. Amazing. So before I, get, I want to I drill into the passage, I, I just want to give a little bit of a, I guess some foundation around the Gospel of John. Okay. So the Gospel of John um, is obviously one of the four Gospels in the New Testament. It's, it, but it's very different than the other three. You know, the other three are known as the Synoptic Gospels. Um, you know, there, are, you know, there are little differences between them, but there's, there's a greater overlap, let's just say, between the other three Gospels. But John almost stands a little bit on its own. The other thing you need to understand about the Gospel of John is that it was probably, uh, it's probably the last Gospel to be written. We don't know 100% for, sure, for certain, but we're fairly certain it was the last one to be written. The third thing you need to understand about the Gospel of John is that I would describe it's probably the most theologically developed gospel or a theologically rich gospel. I'm not saying that the other gospels are rubbish, far from it. The other gospels are good. In fact, my favourite gospel is the Gospel of Luke. That's my personal preference. But this particular gospel is, is, is very rich, in terms of what it says about who Christ is and, 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 and Jesus. And, and, and so for me, it's, it's the most theologically developed gospel. And because it is the most theologically developed gospel, chapter 20, which we just read, is a, a chapter that is loaded with little nuggets of gold, of, 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 of richness about who God is and about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done through death and his resurrection. And I want to try and unpack some of that this morning. Now, to begin looking at the, the passage, I, I want to begin by basically bookending book the passage. I want to focus a little bit at the beginning and why at the end. So the passage begins with basically 10 verses, going for a lot of detail, basically saying that Jesus is not dead. Right? That, that's 10, if, if you don't get anything from those 10 verses, that basically what he's trying, trying to tell you is that Jesus is not dead and that he has overcome death and that Jesus is resurrected. Can I get an amen? Amen. Two of you, great. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Four of you, can I get an amen? Amen. Okay, most of you, brilliant. Um, But then then at the end of this passage, so going right towards the end, it says that we've written these things so that you will know that Jesus is the Messiah. Now I want to point out to you that both these things are connected. Um, in fact, the words Messiah and, and actually the words death is, has a real a significant meaning, particularly for the ancient Jews. Um, so let's first talk about Messiah. Okay, So to understand Messiah, you have to do a little bit of history. I won't bore you, I won't talk for hours, but I might talk for about a minute. So before Jesus walked the earth, hundreds of years before, um, um, the Jews were, used to be a mighty nation. A successful, a prosperous nation, and, and it was fantastic. And they had kings, and God's presence was with, with them, and it was wonderful. And then it all went whole, blew on. When another superpower came, and they conquered the Jews, and they took them into exile. And that went on for a period of time. And then it kind of came back to the homeland, but it wasn't quite the same. There were still broken people. They still struggled they never really uh, restored themselves to their former greatness. And in fact, what happened was there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of being downtrodden, of being broken, of, let's say, feeling abandoned even, um, of, 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 not, of, of missing that presence of God, of, of, of suffering, um, being, being, being mistreated by other people. And for them, their one true hope was that one day God will raise up a Messiah, he would bring restoration and transformation and healing and turn the situation around for them. That was Messiah. That's what, that's what the Messiah meant for the Jews. In fact, to be honest, outside of Judaism, the, Messiah, the word Messiah didn't mean very much. You know, if, if they went to a Gentile at the time of Jesus and said, the Messiah is coming, it wouldn't mean much, which is why in the book of Acts you find, you know, in the earlier chapters where they talk to you know, Jewish people, they tend to use the word Messiah, but then in later chapters, when they talk to Gentile people, they tend to use the word Lord, because Lord is a bit more understandable to non-Jewish people. So the word Messiah is like a loaded term. It had some real significant meanings to the Jews. Okay, so I'm going to take that word Messiah and put it to one side. Park it there for a second. Let me talk about the word death. Now, for the Jews, the word death is also significant. um, Because the word death is like their greatest enemy. You know, the biggest enemy, the biggest enemy of, of the people is death. In fact, the biggest enemy of all of us is death. But for the Jews, it's, it was particularly significant. Um, I'm reminded of the famous story of Adam and Eve. Okay, who remembers the story of Adam and Eve? So Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, and God basically says, "Look, you can do whatever you want, just keep your hands off the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil." And they paid no attention to God and do it anyway. They touch the fruit on the, on, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It kind of reminds me of, of parenthood, really. Um, but basically, if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. You basically say to your kids, you can do whatever you want. You can play with all these wonderful activities over here. Just keep your hands off my stuff. Um, just don't touch my stuff. My stuff is my stuff. You play with your stuff. And you turn, you, know, you, turn, you turn around for two minutes, and then you come back, and you're all in your stuff. Well, that's what Adam and Eve did. They kind of disobeyed God. And God warned them that if you do that, you would die. Now, for us Christians, when we think of that story, we tend to think of it, this is the story when sin came into the world. But for Jews, they, they think of it in a similar way. But when they think of the story, they think of it as this is the story that tells us about the consequences of sin that came into the world, which is death. Yeah. They're focused on death. Death is the problem. Okay, that's the problem. Yes, yeah, sin's a problem, but ultimately death is the problem. Um, death, I, I, when I say death, I mean physical death. I mean, I mean, I, I mean a kind of uh, a decaying, fertility in life. Uh, for, for the Jews, exile, when they, when they went into exile, it was like corporate death. As a people, they died. You know, we used to be in the presence of God that's ripped from them. And there's death. And they never really got back to that place of joy and hope and healing and restoration. And so, there, so death was the big enemy. That was the, that's the thing that they couldn't beat, it, they couldn't get a handle on, was death. And So back to the Gospel of John. For the first 17 chapters, Jesus comes onto the stage and he does wonderful miracles. And he does one, and he teaches amazing stuff, and he transforms the lives of thousands and thousands, thousands and thousands of people, proving without any shell of a doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who brings restoration in life. And then chapters eighteen and nineteen comes along, and it all goes horribly wrong, because Jesus is arrested, he is tried, he's crucified. He's butchered and he's murdered and he dies. He's not sick. He dies. He's dead. He's very, very dead. Jesus has succumbed to the greatest enemy. And for for a moment, it appears that all hope is lost. But then comes chapter 20. And in chapter 20, we find out, in most uncertain terms, that Jesus is no longer dead, but he's alive again. He's come back from the death. He's overcome death. He's beaten death. Not, he's physically beaten death. He's, just, he's, not, he's not philosophically beaten death. He's not metaphorically beaten death. Yeah. Or, you know, he's, he's, he's literally, bodily, physically, emphatically yes. conquered death in a very blatant way. Yeah. Um, there's 10 verses dedicated, just, just in case you, you, you miss it. He's beaten death. He's alive. He's resurrected. Proving once and for all that He's not only the Messiah in life, but He's also the Messiah in death. Yes. He's not only Lord in life, but He's also Lord in death. He's Lord in all circumstances, yeah. Yeah. in all situations. There's no place, there's no, there's no, there's no space, there's no time, there's no, um, there's no subspace time if you to sci-fi. There's, there's, none, none of that. There's nothing. There's no, there's no, there's no place in the cosmos where Jesus is not the Messiah, Hallelujah. and therefore. You no, know, to follow Jesus means you are literally following the Messiah of, of everything, the Lord of everything. That's why the resurrection is important. Wow, That's why it's important. <laughs> Good. Amen. Good. I'm glad you got that. Now there's there's four takeaways I want us to take home with us about Jesus being the Messiah. Four. Um, there's probably more, but, you know, I'm, I really, I'm pushing it with four points. It's, better, it's Normally better to have two or three, but I'm pushing it already. So I'm sticking with four. And the first point is Jesus being the Messiah means that he brings the forgiveness of sins. Can I get an amen? amen. But before you get too excited, I, I just want you to hold back for a second, because I want to suggest that forgiveness of sins is probably better than what you think it is. What do I mean by that? Because normally when you think of the forgiveness of sins, you tend to think of, you know, little Johnny has stolen a £5 note from Auntie Susie's purse and God basically says, little Johnny, I forgive you. And if you think that, you're correct. that It does mean that. But what I'm trying to say is it means more than that too. See, for us as Christians, we tend to think of forgiveness of sins. We tend to think of it being God has forgiven my sin, which basically means I get to go to heaven. So the emphasis for us is destination, Um, but for the Jews, they they also believed in destination. But but it wasn't just destination for the Jews. Um, For them, the the emphasis was for remember these people have been broken for centuries. They, They they felt almost abandoned by God for centuries. For the Jews, forgiveness of sins was not about destination; it was more about belonging. Do they belong to God? Does God accept them? Does God want them? Does God hear them? Does God does God think about? Them? Does God want them into his family? It's about being part of the family of God. Belonging is the key thing. And what and what and so when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, and he says this a number of times in, in the Gospels, he is saying, by the way, the five pound have stolen, I've forgiven you, which is good. But he's also saying you belong. You belong in the people of God. I accept you. I want you. I hear you. I embrace you. I think of you. You matter to me. You belong in the people of God. That's what they're getting. That's what they're hearing. Yes, they are hearing about the individual things that they've done, but they're hearing more than they're hearing about belonging. Um, we're We're kind of in the middle of a Galatians series, aren't we? And it's been quite a few Sermons, I, mean, I don't know, it's 5, 10, 23, I don't know, quite a lot of sermons on Galatians. Now, here is my two pennies piece. Okay, I've, I've sneaked it in. My two pennies piece. I, I, I believe that the, 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 the letter of Galatians is actually about belonging. Yeah. Deep down, it's about belonging. You've got a bunch of Christians on one side basically saying that these other Christians do not belong because they're not like us. They don't. Follow our practices. They do not do not circumcise that like we are circumcised. They don't belong. And Paul, for a whole range of arguments, including the law versus grace and all that stuff, is basically saying, actually, in Jesus, everyone belongs. It's about belonging. If you, you know, in life, in the, you know, in the world we live in now, it, there's, there's, people do so many so many crazy things to try to belong somewhere. You know, we, we you know on Sundays. I mean, if you, were, even if you were take a drive after church, you see all these Lycra boys on their bikes with Sky. You know, they're all, suddenly they're all members of the Sky team because they all want to belong. Every Saturday, it seems to be almost every town in the country there's park one. Again, you know, I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying people like to belong. With technology, we like to belong. We go, we go for such lengths to try to belong, but the truth is, true belonging is found in Jesus. And so, yes, you know, when, when it comes to forgiveness of sins, God does take those sins, and I mean all sins, even the woody, really grotty, nasty stuff. God can take all sins and take those from you, but He doesn't just do that. He takes you and He places you in the family of God. That's that's the good stuff. That's the good stuff. So that's the first takeaway. Now the second takeaway, I'm quite excited about I think something that you, some maybe you said it whispered to, it to Steve at the end about comfort. A morning is, it, is that true? Yeah. yeah, that's good because that's my second point. <laughs> and it's quite it was, I was actually quite encouraged by that because it, I felt like great. I'm actually on onto something here. Um, the second takeaway is that the Messiah in, of Jesus, Jesus the Messiah gives comfort to those who mourn, comfort to those who live in sorrow. You know, sometimes when people give like a gospel message, they, they, they tend to oversell Christianity. They, they, they tend to sell it as something where, it's, where all your problems disappear into the ether. That's not true. I wish it was, but it's not true. The fact is, Christians and non-Christians suffer all the same. The difference is, is that as Christians, we know that Jesus brings us comfort. Yes. And I'm not talking about the kind of Walt Disney, Spielberg movie, kind of you know, fantastical um, comfort, which is not true. I'm talking about real comfort in a real world where real stuff happens, real comfort that tackles real issues. Real, a real comfort. You understand what I'm talking about? The real, the real thing. Um, a couple of years ago, when I was, so I recently well fairly recently graduated from Barber College, two years ago still studying and we went to a special kind of, almost like a post Easter thingy and jiggy um, and, and one of my lecturers preached a sermon on lament and, um, and in, as part of the sermon they mentioned something, they, 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 they told us that actually years ago they were, they were abused as a child Which, and it was like okay um, and, and, and for, for a long time, they didn't do anything about it. And then it kind of came to a head. And, but what they said is that Jesus brought them healing through that. But he didn't do it for a magic wand. It wasn't like he flicked his finger and, and suddenly all the pain has disappeared into the ether somewhere. What happened was, is that Jesus led them through a process of lament, of dealing with it. But he came through to the other side. And now he's completely healed. Completely healed. He's not making it up. He's saying, I'm completely healed. I don't deny what's happened. I know that Jesus has healed me. So there's real healing. That's what I'm trying to get to you guys. There's real healing and comfort in times of sorrow and in times of mourning through Jesus the Messiah. That's the second takeaway. The third takeaway, I want to rattle through this fairly quickly because I want to have to give us some time to respond, is, is that Jesus the Messiah gives us peace in times of fear. Fear is a big big issue in this world. I don't know about you, but every time I turn on the news, I get an impression this country is becoming more and more fearful. We're more fearful of each other. We're fearful of terrorism. We're just afraid. We're just paranoid and afraid. And Almost everything on on social media seems to point to this sense of fear. But I want to say that in particular in this text, there's two fears I think kind of stand out to me. The first one I think is the fear of death because of the the whole emphasis of Jesus overcoming death. And the second one is the fear of others. So the fear of death. Last year, um, an old friend of mine passed away. He he wasn't that much older than me. And when that happened, it it reminded me of a, a mutual friend of ours who passed away about a week before Trenton, my youngest, was born. And he was he was definitely younger than me. And that reminded me of, of a few years earlier than that, uh, a young lady who, probably at the age of 33, passed away in her sleep in Australia. And we I remember we actually we actually started my first small group together about twenty years ago. And I remember so so and when this, when you go for seasons like that, you tend to feel rather vulnerable because you realize how fragile life is. And and to be honest, you can become fearful. But in times like that, what Jesus says is, peace be with you. You know, Jesus brings peace. You don't have to fear death. Let me explain why. There's two reasons why you don't have to fear death. First of all, Jesus the Messiah has faced death. He's he's taken it on. He's faced it. He's tasted death and beaten death. Number two... You know, even though we face death, the fact is death is not the end of the story. That's so important. It's not the end of the story. Which means you can live life with a, a real sense of liberty and freedom. I live life, live your life selfishly, not selfishly, but selflessly, where you can focus on other people. You can focus on what God wants you to do. It, it, it completely transforms you when you lose your fear of death and recognize you're serving the Messiah that has overcome death. The second thing is, is the fear of people. Now in the passage, you know, Jesus comes to his disciples and they lock themselves in the house because they're frightened of the people. They bolted themselves in. And Jesus walks right through the door and he says, Peace be with you. In Jesus, you don't have to fear anybody. In Jesus, you don't have to fear anybody. You know, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus raised from the dead, he, he says to his disciples, Do not be afraid. There's no fear here. You don't have to be afraid in Jesus. There's there's you know whether it's insecurities, whether it's people, you know, whether you feel particularly attacked by any group of people, the fact is you don't have to fear because in Jesus there's no fear here. There's no fear in Christ. The third takeaway, the fourth takeaway. The fourth takeaway is the Messiah of Jesus. Jesus the Messiah walks through us through times of uncertainty. And I come towards the end of the passage, and I want to talk briefly about Dalton Thomas, the famous Dalton Thomas passage, where he basically says, look, until I see Jesus in the flesh and see his wounds and stick my hands in it, I ain't believing. I ain't buying it. I smell a rat. And then Jesus shows up, and he allows him to stick his hands in his... He actually did it bit great, a bit gross, really. I always thought it was a bit gross, but he did it. Now, if, we, if the story stopped there, you might think that the, the punchline, the point of the story is that every time we doubt, that God will show up and take the doubt away by giving us hard evidence. But the thing is, that's not how the story ends. The story ends with Jesus saying, look, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who do not see, who do not get the hard evidence, but believe anyway. So, from, so what Jesus is saying is not that God, God's going to take away uncertainty. What Jesus is saying is that he wants us to learn to trust him and live for him despite uncertainty. Yeah. The truth, because the, the fact of the matter is life is full of uncertainties. You know, if you live long enough, life is full of uncertainties. There's, there's always unanswered questions and, and, and paradoxes and, and, things, and things that don't quite make sense. There are, there are you know, the questions of what and why and when and where and all. What, God, what are you doing? And things happen which begin to make sense but then they don't quite make sense. That's life. That's normal. That's what happens. And what Jesus is saying actually, the life of faith is about trusting God despite those things. Now, you might say that how does that even begin to work? It works because. A life of faith is about relationship. It's about relationship. Let me give you a a simple example. You know, Rachel and I, we've been, we will be married in about 10 years, uh, 10 years in October. At this point, you're meant to go, (laughs) woo! Quick learners, I like it. 10 years in, in, in October. Now, you may ask me, do I have hard evidence? that she will always be faithful to me? The answer is, well, no, I don't have hard evidence. I don't have, I don't have DNA or anything. I don't, have, I don't have hard evidence. But am I worried? No, not really. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I go to bed at night and I, I sleep peacefully. Um, but, but how does it work? Well, we, we have a relationship. I know her. She knows me. I've, I've learned to trust her. And I go to bed at night and I sleep with peace in my heart. Even though I don't have the, all the hard evidence, even though even though there's probably a whole bunch of unanswered questions, I can sleep at night with the peace that I, I can trust her, and, and and that's how and that's and that's how faith works. You know, it's not it's not about facts. If you if you if you're going for a time of uncertainty, you don't need data, you don't need facts, you don't need a website that tells you all the answers. What you need is to walk with Jesus, yeah. and the more you walk with Jesus, yeah. the less that matters. Yeah. Because your, 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 your confidence is found in your, in your relationship with the Messiah, not in your relationship in facts. Yeah, that's true. Just a couple of days ago, we were listening to an audio tape of one of the Chronicles of Narnia stories, Prince Caspian, in the car of the kids. And um, it's a really great little scene, because what happens is Lucy meets Aslan. Aslan represents Jesus, and she meets Aslan, she gives him a big cuddle, and she says, Aslan, you got bigger! And he responds, yes, I have got bigger because you have got bigger. That's like, eh? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Normally, when as a child gets bigger, the surroundings get smaller. But she says, no, I've got bigger because you have got bigger. You've got older, so I have got bigger. In other words, what he's saying is, is as you have matured in life, as you have grown up with me, I have grown bigger in your eyes. So in relationship... The more we walk with our Messiah, Jesus, the bigger Jesus becomes. The more we begin to trust him, despite the circumstances, whether it's an easy circumstance or a very difficult one. And we go through both, basically, in life. And the fact is, the more you walk with Jesus, the bigger Jesus becomes. That's how it works. You know, so, so, so I, I just want to encourage you. I think sometimes when it comes to resurrection talks, sometimes it's all about the non-Christians. But actually, it's about, it's about both. God's got a message for all of us. Yeah. message for the non-Christians, which is the forgiveness of sins and belonging. Yeah. And for those who, who already sense the belonging, the, the message that actually God wants to bring comfort and glad and that God continues to walk with us. Can, can we please stand up? And perhaps if the band can come, come back up. <coughs> we were one a little bit over, but that's okay. We're allowed to run a little bit over. Perhaps you can close our eyes. Uh, because there's a couple of responses I want to make. The first one is for those who may not know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. I, sp- I spent some time talking about the forgiveness of sins. What I for- forgot to mention, and I will mention now is the forgiveness of sins is, requires consent. And it requires consent because this is about relationship. And relationships are based on consent. You know, God doesn't jump on you like a virus. Viruses jump on people. Relationships are about consent. God is willing, and when you're willing, the forgiveness of sins will come. If that's you, if you want to experience that that forgiveness, that, that belonging, that, that healing, the comfort, the peace, the, the, the one that walks with you through all seasons of life. If you want that to be your reality and you want to give Jesus your consent, then I ask you to put your hands up. No one else is watching you put your hands up and say, Jesus, I want to know you as my Lord and Savior. I want to meet with you. Okay. I'm going to lead everyone through a prayer. Regardless you're a Christian, I invite you to pray with me. Dear Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for overcoming death for me. me. Jesus, you are the Messiah. Messiah. Lord, give me the forgiveness of sins. sins. Change my life. Change life. Change Change my heart. Give me a sense of belonging. Bring me into your family. Bring me peace. Bring me me comfort. And bring me me joy. joy. In the name of Jesus. Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, I I also want to give a, a quick call for those who are believers. But perhaps you are going for a season of sorrow. Or fear, or perhaps uncertainty. I think it would be wrong not to give an opportunity for you to receive prayer. If that's you, I would like you to be bold and come to the front. And I and, and other leaders in the church will pray for you. Because that's the reality. God wants to give you comfort. God wants to give you peace. And God wants to give you a sense of his presence despite of the uncertainty. So if that's you, would you please come to the front? and we will pray for you.